You're listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. It's the place we talk about everything that's important and nothing that isn't. I'm your host, Vinay Prasad. In today's episode of Plenary Session, we're going to talk about a few things. First, based on a listener request, we're going to talk about the New England Journal of Medicine study called Relevance. Relevance is a randomized phase three trial that compares R-squared against R-chemotherapy in follicular lymphoma. Next, we have Jenny Gill, who works with me. We'll be talking about a paper that she and I wrote together that appears in The Lancet. I'll leave it to her to explain. Finally, we have our special guest. Our guest today is Katherine Livingston. She is a family medicine physician who also spends a great deal of time working for the Oregon Health Authority. She's an expert in healthcare policy, and she's gonna take us through some of the intricacies of state Medicaid. Stay tuned. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast and you like this episode, please go to iTunes and give us five stars. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or whatever service you prefer. Okay, now for the main event, the New England Journal of Medicine study called Relevance. Relevance, or as I'll argue throughout this brief dissection, Irrelevant, an irrelevant study for clinical practice. Relevance is titled Rituximab plus Lenalidomide, an advanced or untreated follicular lymphoma. And I just have eight things to say about it. Number one, we thank X and Y of BioConnections for editorial support and preparation of an earlier version of the manuscript and from the text. The first draft of the manuscript was written by medical writers who were funded by Celgene. Oh dear, oh dear. Why do you do this to me? I've, I've said before on this podcast that I'm just going to keep calling it out every time I see it. Um, I don't think that this is appropriate. I think we have to write our own articles. Um, again, there's a number of sentences in this article that I would really wonder if they would still be there if it was written by investigators and not written by someone who wants to portray this failed trial in as favorable a light as possible. Okay. I really don't like that. Don't, don't make me keep doing this, people. Don't make me keep, keep saying this. Number two, this is a randomized control trial of R-squared versus R-chemotherapy, investigator choice, powered to detect superiority of 120-week complete response. We specified that the combination of rituxin plus lenalidomide would be considered to be superior to R-chemotherapy with respect to the primary endpoints. The study had a 90% power to detect a between-group difference of a of 12 percentage points in the rate of confirmed or unconfirmed CRs at 120 weeks. It was powered to detect a hazard ratio of 0.77 in terms of PFS. Let me be very clear. This trial was not powered, nor was it designed, nor should it be interpreted to mean these two arms are equivalent. It was not an equivalent study. It was not a non-inferiority study. If you wanted to design an equivalent study, 
you very likely would have had to have a larger sample size, more power to tighten those confidence intervals around the point estimate to really show that these two are hitting the same spot. Um, this was not designed for that. It should not be interpreted that way. It is a failed superiority study. It tried to prove superiority, and as we'll see, it did not do that. Now, why complete response at 120 weeks? That seems a bit bizarre. Um, well, the authors explain, or somebody explains, whoever wrote this. Confirmed or unconfirmed complete response at 120 weeks was chosen as a co-primary endpoint because it was a slight because it was a slightly better trial-level surrogate for progression-free survival than complete response at 30 months in the flash analysis. Okay, so now we're getting into the weeds a bit, but you should know that. When you want to use a surrogate endpoint to predict clinical outcomes, it is great to have a validated surrogate endpoint, a surrogate endpoint that you know that drugs that m improve this surrogate endpoint later improve overall survival in a trial-level analysis. And at some point in this podcast, we'll take a deep dive and actually kind of explain many of these concepts. Um, but here, I think this is a bad surrogate analysis validation study to hang their hat on for a couple of reasons. One, let's just take a look at the FLASH study. 346 references were examined. 29 studies met the required selection criteria. The owners of these 29 studies were contacted, and 21 provided IPD, which is individual patient data. Seven were subsequently excluded for lack of sufficient data to derive 30-month CR. Two of 15 studies had 20% missing complete response status after clinical calculation rules were applied and were subsequently excluded from further analysis. Therefore, 13 studies, and then they note only eight were induction studies, and then they go on. But what I want to point out here is that when these authors sought to validate this endpoint as a surrogate endpoint, they had 29 putative studies that could presumably provide information on the quality of this surrogate endpoint for predicting outcomes, they were left with eight in the final analysis. When we look at surrogate validation studies, and I've written about this in a number of publications in JAM Internal Medicine in a review article that I'll talk about in a second with my friend Robert Kemp, who's in the United Kingdom, um, it is important that you use all of the potentially applicable data to draw conclusions about the validity of the surrogate endpoint. Just as you would if you wanted a meta-analysis of aspirin for headache, um, and if there were a thousand randomized control trials and you only ended up looking at 80, one would wonder if the 80 out of a thousand studies that you actually looked at um, were representative, if perhaps there was something about the studies that you are not including that would change your conclusion about aspirin for headaches. Uh, similarly, the same is true for surrogate validation studies, which is a meta-analytic approach, which is a meta-regression approach, um, you need to have most of the data that you sought out to have that you thought would be potentially informative. So I think it is problematic that this validation study has so little data included in it. Two, I think you all have to read this paper entitled Surrogate Endpoints in Oncology, When Are They Acceptable for Regulatory and Clinical Decisions, and Are They Currently Overused? Uh, Robert Kemp was a medical student at Oxford who came over to Portland, Oregon and spent a few weeks with me. Um, we worked on a number of projects, and this was one of those projects. Um, I think he did a fantastic job. He really captured almost everything you need to know about surrogate validation studies in like five, six, seven pages. Um, he really hit the ball out of the park here. So what I want to say here is that 
the authors aren't looking at simply PFS as a predictor of OS, that kind of surrogate relationship, or simply the change in response rate as a predictor of outcome. They're looking at response rate at a certain moment in time. Um, this is a bit problematic. It actually introduces the problem of multiplicity. Um, Robert Kemp and I talked about this in a slightly different context. We we're talking about surrogate threshold effects in our paper, where, for instance, you say, look, I don't think PFS by itself may or may not be predictive of subsequent OS, but perhaps a three-month change in PFS or a four-month change in PFS, that's predictive, right? You draw the line arbitrarily at some point. Uh, similarly here, you know, why 120 months? Why not 80 months? Why not 60 months? You know, they have a few places they can draw the line. So here's what Robert Kemp writes. Surrogate threshold effect, where some numerical gain in the surrogate is shown to be strongly predictive of some improvement in survival. For instance, PFS may not be an ideal predictor of OS, but perhaps a PFS gain of greater than five months, or 50%, is reliable. These studies, however, are plagued by multiplicity. Since a priori, we do not know what amount of PFS gain will be predictive, many values are explored until one, by chance alone, yields a strong correlation. So I want to say here is in the flash analysis, of course, the authors do state they pre-specified their analysis plan. Um, and that may well be true. I don't even doubt that. Um, but there is that problem of multiplicity here because it's not just these authors you care about. It's all of the people in this space who could potentially be looking for surrogate endpoints in follicular lymphoma. And this is a big market share. And a surrogate endpoint here has tremendous financial implications. So one can imagine there are many people, public or private, who are probing these data sets to try to find some surrogate that you can hang your hat on. What you have in these situations is if there are only so many studies, which there are, and you are looking for surrogates, 120 months, 60 months, PFS two months after four months of treatment, PFS 10% increase after six months of treatment, et cetera, et cetera. There are many, many, many putative surrogates you could examine in these data sets. By chance alone, some of them will correlate with survival. Um, but that does not provide strong assurance that those surrogates are valid. This is a kind of a bigger problem in this field, and I won't be able to talk about it as much as I want to talk about it right now, um, but I encourage you to take a look at that paper. But needless to say, you know, I'm not a tremendous fan of this analysis of 120 weeks CR rate as a surrogate that you can hang your hat on. Four, the authors found the response rate of R-squared to be 84%, which is lower than both prior phase two studies. So recall that Fowler noted a response rate of 90% in the 2014 Lancet Oncology paper. Martin noted a response rate of 95% in the Annals of Oncology 2017. Same regimen, similar population. Um, this erosion of response rate, losing something like 11 or 6 percentage points, actually falls quite in line with a very classic paper by Eric X. Chen and colleagues from Princess Margaret that appeared in the JCO in 2005, if I recall correctly, that compared the response rate of the same chemo regimens in the same population in uncontrolled versus controlled settings. And what they found was uncontrolled phase two trials tended to exaggerate response rate over subsequent randomized studies. And, and we see some hint of that in this study as well. Number five, the dose of rituxin. If you got R-squared in this study, you got 21 doses of rituxin, 375 milligrams per meter squared. If you got R-chemotherapy in this study, you got 20 doses of rituxin if you got R-CHOP or R-CVP, and you only got 18 if you got BR. So there was a bit of an imbalance in how much R was given. I think that's just worth noting. Six, 
the choice of chemotherapy comparator. Now, we already know prior to this study that BR is superior to RCHOP in terms of PFS and follicular lymphoma based on data by Rummel. I have only ever seen BR given at the hospitals I've worked at in the United States. I do not see a lot of RCHOP being given in this space. And yet, in this study, only 22% of the patients on this trial got BR. Most of them got RCHOP. I believe that R-squared versus BR should have been the comparator of this study. It should not be R-squared versus investigator choice, allowing a choice that has already proven inferior in terms of PFS to BR. I think if you're interested, go take a look at supplemental figure S7, which shows outcomes by the choice of investigator choice chemotherapy, and actually strongly suggests that the BR group would have had a superior PFS to R-squared. Number seven, let's talk about toxicity. In the supplementary figure F1, we find that 43 patients discontinued due to toxicity in the R-squared arm, but only 16 discontinued due to toxicity in the chemotherapy arm. I just want to point out some of the differences in toxicity. 43% of patients receiving R-squared had cutaneous reactions versus 24% in our chemotherapy. 37% had diarrhea versus 19% on our chemotherapy. Abdominal pain was greater with R-squared, 15% versus 9%. Peripheral edema was 14% versus 9%. Muscle spasms, 13% versus 4%. Um, you can talk about the hematologic toxicity, and I'm going to make a final point about that, but that is well known uh, for our chemotherapy. It happens in the first six cycles when the chemotherapy is given. It almost always gets better. Uh, and there's some evidence in the supplement here that shows that it will get better. Um, and it is typically not something that patients complain about a great deal, uh, although it is something that doctors take seriously, whereas skin reactions, diarrhea, abdominal pain, these really do affect quality of life. Okay, my eighth and final point about this paper. The authors allowed to write, quote, in conclusion, the efficacy of rituximab plus lenalidomide was similar to that of rituximab plus chemotherapy. However, differences between the two groups were noted in safety profiles. No, 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 that is incorrect. Moreover, the closing lines of the abstract are incorrect. Efficacy results were similar. No, no, this was not an equivalence trial. This was not a non-inferiority trial. You should not be saying that. Moreover, this sentence in the discussion is wrong. Quote, superiority was not shown for either regimen. End quote. That's wrong because what the standard of care is currently does not have to show superiority over an experimental therapy. That's not how it works you have to show your novel, experimental, more costly therapy is superior per your own statistical plan over what we're already doing. That is how science works. Um, BR does not have the obligation to show superiority over R squared. Moreover, you should have been, okay, I, 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 I'm getting worked up. Instead of getting too upset about these statements, I think it's worth pointing out that these are dangerous, these are outright false, these are not what the study shows. Um, the journal should not have allowed these statements in, these should have been removed by the peer reviewers or in editorial oversight. The journal should not have allowed these conclusions. Um, I have taken the liberty of rewriting, and if anyone would like to hire me as a medical writer, I'd be happy to, happy to join your team, um, but I've taken the liberty of rewriting the conclusion statement. I, I'll read it all to you. This will be my conclusion from this paper the irrelevant, I mean the relevance trial. Um, in conclusion, R-squared failed to show superiority over R plus chemotherapy. We gave our drug with a bit more rituxin. We tested it preferentially against chemo backbones inferior to BR. We picked a surrogate that was validated based on a fragment of all data, and yet we still failed. 
why anyone would want to use a more costly regimen that failed with far less data than chemo is beyond the scope of this paper. Yet, we hope our drug reps can take the reprints we bought and change the hearts and minds of doctors in practice. In fact, we're counting on it, and we know we will succeed. We are glad the journal lowered their standards and allowed us to insert some patently unproven sentences that will permit and facilitate marketing. And finally, we'd like to thank the medical writers who absolutely did not do most of the work here, which we absolutely did do most of the work. Hashtag medical writers rock. Hashtag, hey, is that dictation machine still on? I don't know. Is it running? I hope the authors don't read this carefully. They might want to remove these sentences. Oh, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. And that's how the paper ends. Wow, that's a very unusual ending to a paper. I haven't seen too many like that. Okay, side note. I just have one side note to point out. Uh, interested readers can go look at supplemental figure S8, which shows hemoglobin over time. Okay, come on. you got to be ashamed of yourself for truncating the y-axis like that. Take a look at this, readers. This is really, this is really something, something special. Read the axis. Uh, before you start transfusing patients' blood, okay? This is simply a shameful presentation of data. Um, come on, come on, don't, don't do this. All right, that's it. That's the relevance trial. I think it um, changes nothing. I think there are a number of problematic sentences in the manuscript. Um, I, I'm not sure I'm a big fan of the study. I, I thank the reader for, for making me go over it. I spent a great deal of time this morning reading it, reading the supplement, um, looking through some past analyses, uh, I feel I emerged a different person than when I set out to look into this paper. Um, so I thank you. Thanks to the listener who, who asked for it. All right. Now we will, we promise we will be more optimistic in this podcast. And we're going to move to our two interviews, one with Jenny Gill about a recent paper we published in The Lancet, and then to our main event, Catherine Livingston. So stay tuned. I'm back here in plenary session HQ with Jenny Gill. Jenny Gill has the misfortune of having to work with me on a regular basis. Is that right, Jenny? Not the misfortune, but yes, that's correct. But yes, we work together. And how long have we worked together? In November, it'll be a year. Uh, almost a year. Mm -hmm. And let's tell listeners a little bit about your background. You did your undergraduate degree at the University of Michigan. Go blue. Or, oh, don't ever say that to me. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Spartan at heart. Um, <laughs> we'll, we'll have to remove that from the recording process. Um, <laughs> uh, and your undergraduate major was, in, was English. Yes, that's correct. I see. And then uh, you moved to Portland uh, a few years ago, where you actually spent some time working at the naturopathic school. Um, but uh, And you did a degree there, your master's degree. From yeah, there. I did research at NUNM, National University of Natural Medicine. I see. It was actually a degree in research. I see. And you did formal uh, empirical analysis of, of naturopathic products as part of your degree. Yes, I worked on the bench, so a bit different from what we're doing now. Oh, I see. And for the last year, you've been working on a, a project with, uh, with a big team that we're working on medical reversals. And it's given you a chance to take a deep dive into many medical articles. Have you found it enjoyable? I have. I surprisingly love reading all of the research articles, even though there are days that it's a bit slow. But I feel like I'm much more well-rounded in medical research in general. Having read all these articles. Yes. Some people would find that uh, enjoying all these articles is a warning sign. <laughs> I don't know of what, but it's a bit of a warning sign. It is. I'm a big nerd. 
<laughs> well. A plenard. A plenard. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. So we had been thinking about what to call fans of plenary session. Um, and uh, I, I thought plenaries was one possibility. Uh, but you think plenards. I like plenaries. Plenards, you almost miss the nerd part of it. I see. And um, yeah, maybe. Uh, but we'll, we'll, have to, we'll have to workshop that a little bit more. Yeah. Well, we brought you here on plenary session. Jenny Gill, to talk about a recent paper that you and I wrote that appeared in The Lancet. But before we talk about this paper, this is not the first paper we published together, is it? No, it is not. Let's talk about our last paper, because you're entirely unprepared to talk about that, so that's why I like (laughs) to bring it up. Uh, We published a paper a few months ago that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And what was the topic? It was BRCA testing. Mm for 23andMe, which Mm. is a genetic testing company, uh, direct to consumer, Mm -hmm. and they were introducing three new BRCA mutations that they were offering to consumers that was, uh, they were the most common mutations for Ashkenazi Jewish women. Mm -hmm. And, um, but perhaps not the most common mutations uh, among all women who have deleterious BRCA mutations. Yes, that's correct. It's specifically for Ashkenazi women. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and and that was something that we spent a great deal of time talking about, that disconnect between marketing a test um, with mutations for a particular um, group uh, that perhaps, perhaps by intent, but perhaps un- uh, unwittingly will be used in a much broader population and some of the implications of that, of that kind of action. Well, let's talk about the new paper, All which right. you've actually prepared for. A bit. So, what's the title of this paper? The title is Improving Observational Studies in the Era of Big Data. And, uh, and uh, do observational studies need to be improved in the era of big data? Well, they're really popularizing now more and more, almost overtaking randomized control trials. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, they do need improvement. There's a How dare you? <laughs> They're perfect, every single one of them. They're like snowflakes. <laughs> Maybe. I, w- I wish. I wish they I were. That would be great because then we can use them to... And rely upon them. Yeah, and rely mm-hmm. upon them and create medical practices from their results. Mm-hmm. But there's a few major issues which we highlighted in the paper. I see. And, um, and what are those issues? The three we highlighted were residual confounding, inaccurate time zero, and multiplicity. Oh boy, oh boy. Um, what what are those three things? Let's go through okay. them. Let's go through them one by one. Residual <laughs> confounding. What does that mean? Uh, residual residual confounding are unknown confounders that are usually missed in observational studies. Mm-hmm. Confounders are variables that can affect the outcome that are independent of the independent variable Mm -hmm. of what you're testing. Mm -hmm. And there's some obvious ones, age, sex, socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. but there's ones that no matter what you do to adjust for statistically, you'll miss them. Mm -hmm. And this can affect your results and therefore uh, invalidate your, your conclusion, your conclusion. leads you to draw perhaps an erroneous inference from the data. Correct. Um, and uh, and and part of the reason you'd miss confounders is um, one you you measured it, but you didn't anticipate that it had something to do with your 
question. I guess, but the other possibility is that you simply didn't measure it. And and I think researchers who spend more and more time with data um, will come to the conclusion that there are lots of things we see and know in the clinical situation that we do not adequately write down in the EMR and that we do not adequately um, pass along to administrative data sets like CMS or, or larger data sets of that sort. And residual confounding is this problem, um, as you put it, that something else is driving the association you're finding and not what you think it is, and that can lead to a great deal of trouble. Now tell us about time zero. That's, that's a tricky one. I'm not sure I fully understand it. Huh? <laughs> uh, I, I trust the experts on time zero. Okay, well, I will say that I'm not an expert, but through my research, uh-huh. which is my job, so hopefully I understand a bit more. Okay. Inaccurate time zero is a bias that occurs when the time zero is not clearly considered or defined mm-hmm. in an observational study. It can happen in randomized trials as well, mm-hmm. but there are issues like immortal time bias mm-hmm. where you don't clearly define when time zero is and patients are recruited over a certain amount of years mm-hmm. and there's a time period before the event before yes the event occurs where it could not occur oh yeah there's a time period where the event cannot occur mm-hmm. in the treatment group mm-hmm. only in the control group mm-hmm. For instance, if you're doing a study on women with breast cancer who are in remission and you are testing whether women with amenorrhea do better Mm -hmm. than women who don't from hormone replacement therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you define amenorrhea as six months without menstruating, Mm -hmm. then in order to be in the treatment group, you need to have six months without an event. Essentially, right. So what you're what you're um, what you're doing as an observational researcher is you created a definition that builds in some guarantee time, uh, which is that uh, you know people in that arm disproportionately went six months without experiencing an event. That's part of the reason they met the definition to be put on that arm or to be counted as that arm. And then the uh, and I think that's just a classic example of immortal time bias. Um, and the third thing. What was the third thing? Multiplicity. Oh, multiplicity, my favorite, my yes. favorite swear word. Uh, <laughs> so what is multiplicity and why does that matter so much in observational data? Multiplicity is an issue where there are many variables that you can account for in your data, uh, confounding variables mm-hmm. like age, sex, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And depending on which variables you choose to adjust for, Mm -hmm. the effect will completely change either. uh, Move one way or the other. Yeah, move one way or the other. Mm -hmm. And you see it, especially in big data observational studies Mm -hmm. where everyone has access to this data. It's free a lot of the time. And there are many researchers asking the same question. Mm -hmm. There's a study by John Unides on the vibration of effects, he calls it, where he takes common supplements and vitamins and tests all-cause mortality from the NHANES data set. And he uses 13 variables and every variation of those. So he'll use one variable or two variables. And he ends up with this graph of the vibration of effects where some of the studies found that the 
that the vitamin or supplement was effective, some didn't, some found it was harmful, some found it was helpful, but most of them fell with a hazard ratio of one, close mm-hmm. to one where the p-value isn't significant mm-hmm. and it really does absolutely nothing, which is kind of what we know. Coffee is not gonna cause or prevent cancer. It probably just helps you get through your day. <laughs> and so and that, I, need, I need that help every day. Yes, as do I. <laughs> And so it's an issue because everyone has access to this data, or a lot of researchers do, and it, and because a lot of observational mm-hmm. studies don't show their protocol and their methods beforehand, you can fish for variables that will show the effect that you want. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you don't, but it can even be an unconscious bias where you do that. And so by testing the vibration of, of effects, which is, a large task to ask someone, but mm. it can really offer your readers, uh, if you find significant results and the vibration of effects um, mirror that, it can really solidify your results to readers. I see. So let me see if I have this straight. Um, what you're saying is that when you have a large observational data set, many, many people at many, many universities can take a crack at analyzing that. And even if we pick just one association, some cause with the outcome all-cause mortality, different researchers have different potential analysis plans. You might adjust for age and sex, and I might adjust for age, sex, race, smoking status. You might adjust for uh, BMI. I might adjust for family history of heart disease. And we may run many, many potential analysis plans. Um, Some of these will give us different associations between the exposure and the outcome. And you're talking about this paper by John Ioannidis and Chirag Patel where they essentially model what would happen if you adjusted for every possible combination of, what did you say, it was 13 or so um, different covariates. And they show you that you can get all sorts of associations that emerge. Um, But as you point out wisely, many of those associations, perhaps even most, center right on one, meaning there really isn't much of a link between these two things. But what what you want us to know is that observational data has creates this problem in a way randomized data doesn't because if many, many people can look at the data and many, many people can analyze it and there are all of these filters in place between getting that analysis from the results phase to the publication phase, the published literature may not reflect the true association between this, uh, between X and the outcome, um, but rather just the associations people think are plausible. Um, And I think John has called that at some point uh, nothing more than an opinion poll or self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is different than randomized trials because we simply don't run 10,000 randomized trials on the same question. Is that accurate? Yes, that's completely accurate. Well said. Well, no, I don't know about that, but um, well, I think you, you know you put it best in the paper. I'm only <laughs> reading the paper, and um, well, actually, for, actually, that, it wasn't you, of course. It was our medical writer that we. Uh, oh yes. Yeah. yeah. So, um, which medical writing company did we use for this one, Jenny? Well, I am an English major, so I guess you are. A med- you are. You are the, med- yeah, <laughs> you're the you're medical. You're the medical writer, huh? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Um, boy, that's, uh, <laughs> you got me. Uh, <laughs> what else should we say? Um, I will say that the reason why there are so many issues with observational studies is because the issues also are the benefits of them, that you can run these observational studies with 
a lot of, a lot more participants than you could in randomized control trials. Mm-hmm. So you have for a lot of power. A lot of a longer follow up. Mm-hmm way less expensive. Mm-hmm. You can ask questions that you may not be able to ask that may be inappropriate for randomized control trials. It's real people, real participant data. So there are positives mm-hmm. and I don't want to say that randomized control trials are the end all be all. Mm-hmm. It's just that we have to be aware if we're going to be utilizing these observational studies. Mm-hmm. To- I think you put that quite well. You said that um the things that are its strengths are also its limits. The fact that it's easy and cheap and anyone can do it is both a strength, but also a limit. It inserts the rampant multiplicity. Um, we didn't talk about the, the solutions we describe in the papers, but I think they were briefly something like u- using more natural experiments. Um, for the question of the uh, the time zero problem, we talked about work by Miguel Hernan and uh, Jamie Robbins about emulating trial design. And for this problem of multiplicity, you talked about pre-specifying your analysis plan and things of that nature. Um, You've been doing this for a year, looking more and more at many, many papers. And listeners don't know, but I can tell you it's many thousands of papers, thousands and thousands of randomized control trials coding them. The unglamorous work that goes into research. Um, How do you see, do you see, do you can do you think about health differently? Do you think about the medical news differently? Are you different than you were a year ago before you started doing this? One hundred percent. And in what I'm way? Very critical. I'm a bit more pessimistic, but I also feel empowered by it. And mm-hmm. I guess that's what I would say to readers who decide to read this comment that it's really important to understand the research behind medical practices, and it's really important to understand how to analyze a research paper, whether it be observational study or a randomized control ch- study. I have read so many randomized mm-hmm. control studies that don't hold any ground. Mm-hmm. And why is that? For, <laughs> for many reasons. Either the methodology or the stat- statistical analysis, or they're just spinning in the conclusion, but mm-hmm. it doesn't match the results. Mm-hmm. And so I would just say, learn how to read studies, whatever they are, but Mm -hmm. if you're looking at observational studies, don't just accept the results Mm -hmm. as they present it. But let me ask you this, and you've really piqued my interest. Uh, By doing this for a year, you're, you're more critical, as you point out, about medical articles. Does that bleed into how you think about things outside of medicine? Oh yeah, definitely. And how's it, yeah. Just how, just people offering me facts. I have to fact check everything. I'm probably a bit more annoying now mm-hmm. that I've been doing all this research, but I think that I have a critical eye on many other things. I probably spend like an hour buying something on Amazon because I have to look at the best uh-huh. product for the best, yeah. And then you put the reviews in one of those other third-party sites that filter out all the potentially spurious reviews. And uh, well, the reason I, uh, I, well, I don't know anything about that, but um, what I do know is that, um, you know, I feel like you're just writing my um, uh, my academic biography for the last 15 years <laughs> <laughs> because uh, by, uh, by doing this, yeah, I feel a lot like how you just put it. Um, I, 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 I really, have to look very deeply at facts before I sign on to the fact, and um, and I want to say that um, I don't know how about you feel, but do you? I, I enjoy the process of thinking about things, um, and it does bleed in. I think outside of medicine for me as well, um, and um, 
part of it is that we talk about some of the papers, but part of it is um, you must have learned to be a better reader just by doing it by yourself. Oh, yeah, definitely. Just, yeah, you don't need a degree or a full-time job in... In medicine? In reading research, uh-huh. or yeah, or in medicine to understand research papers. It takes a really long time initially, but that's what Google and Wikipedia are for. So and what do you do? You Google every term you don't know, or how do you, how do you approach it? Well, it depends what I'm trying to extract from the research study, uh-huh. but yeah, I'll... Google everything, I'll Wikipedia everything, and some things I now understand are not so important for me to understand, but I think that if you're really interested in a subject, whatever it is, it's worth reading the research, and it's worth truly understanding it, and if you want to learn more about research papers, you should maybe take a course online or Mm -hmm. follow Vinay on Twitter. Of course, I... I paid you, and, and in this particular case, I might that might actually be true. I paid you to say that, so I mean, probably indirectly. Uh, but um, um, I think it's very interesting how you put it, and I would say, uh, in some ways, I think you have gotten the medical education that we don't really give medical students. Uh, you you probably don't know, but we really we make them memorize a lot of irrelevant things. Um, we squander uh, many of their years, uh, the best years of their life, really, are squandered. I think memorizing basic science trivialities. Um, what we don't do is, I don't think any medical student has the opportunity to sit down for a year and go through as many studies. I don't think even I, as a student who has actually developed a kind of an interest in it and and tried to do this. I didn't read a fraction of the amount of number of trials that you've read in the last year. Um, and 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 the other thing we do that the listeners don't know about is that, you know, all of us who work on this project together, we meet about once a week. Um, and we go over a lot of these articles, uh, not all of them, of course, but the ones that there's some dispute about. Um, two people read all these articles um, and, and try to code it along several different lines um, which which allow some discussion. So, you know, you're not reading in isolation. You're getting to talk to somebody about somebody with it, and then we go through them together. Um, you know, that's the education that we don't give the students. And, you know, I guess maybe you could speak to, there have been times that the students come, you know, uh, they're passing through our, our room during these days. How, how do you find those? Well, I think that the students that come and work with us have a specific drive to understand their mm, research. Yeah, self-selected. Yeah, I think they are... Confounded by indication. And <laughs> uh, and there's residual confounding. We can't really adjust for that, right? Yes, exactly. Mm. I don't believe that all medical students are like that or medical practitioners are like mm. that, although that's also just an assumption that I'm making. Well, I think it's probably right. But I think they do learn just by reading as well. I don't think they're learning it from their courses unless they take one of your courses. And I think there's a real importance. And anytime I see an MPH next to an MD, I feel comforted because I think that Mm -hmm. they look beyond what they learned and beyond what the doctors around them are doing. Mm -hmm. So 
Jenny Gill, thank you so much for coming on the plenary session. I would ask you the question I ask everybody, which is, um, you know, when I told you you're, you're going to be giving the plenary session, did you imagine this? But I know you do because you knew about this podcast <laughs> and you knew you'd be coming over to this dingy office and it, it wasn't going to be on center stage. Um, if readers want to go find this paper, where do they do it? They go to the Lancet website and the title is? The title is Improving Observational Studies in the Era of Big Data. Thank you so much, Jenny, for doing the hard work, the medical writing of this paper and uh, bringing it to fruition because otherwise it would just be uh, the subject of, of some of the our discussions only. So thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm back here in Plenary Session HQ with Katherine Livingston. Katherine Livingston is a physician who works in family practice medicine, who also spends a great deal of time working for the Oregon Health Authority, where she works on evidence-based appraisals of novel medical devices and drugs and technologies. Katherine, so, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. When I told you you'd be coming and giving the plenary session, is this what you had in mind? <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly, but it's wonderful to see your office. <laughs> yes, it's a, a, a dingy office here in one of the oldest buildings on campus, uh, but it is quiet. It's quite peaceful out here. Nobody comes to visit us here, and that's what we like. Captain Livingston did her medical training at uh, Harvard Medical School. And uh, then you came out here to do residency, uh, first in family practice, family medicine, and next in uh, preventive medicine. And during those years, you earned an MPH. Do I have my facts correct? That's true. And uh, how did you find that experience? It was fantastic. My longstanding passion has been for policy. And so the combination of being able to do clinical family medicine and then bring in the preventive medicine and do a policy uh, fellow or fellowship where I got to work with one of our state representatives and oh, really? really think about healthcare reform from mm -hmm. a from policy levers was a great experience. You, did you know you wanted to do healthcare policy when you were a medical student? I did. Well, I wanted to change the world. You did. You were okay. idealistic. Absolutely. One of those people who actually... Um, subscribe to what they wrote in their personal statement, not like the rest of us. <laughs> yes. Although it is hard to live up to everything that I wrote in my personal statement. I see. It's hard to do all the research and the policy and the teaching and the clinical work. That but, you once imagined. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. we do it. We well, make it work. I see. Um, and uh, and you feel that policy is, is a way to sort of leverage the ability of a doctor to make change beyond the individual examination room? Absolutely. And so here's where my hope is, is that we can really use our clinical experience and expertise to make policies that make sense for people, that really take into account our medical training, thinking about population health and epidemiology, and make sure that those are made by people who actually know what happens in the exam room, but can think on the larger level as well. How come so many policies seem to be bad policies? What is the, why does that happen? Why well, that's a loaded statement. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll be the one to take the heat for it. But I, I do think that I see many very bad policies. Um, but we see fewer of those in Oregon. Yeah, and so I think a lot of that is because of the way that we've set things up. And the Oregon legislature has been very clear about how they want things done. And so largely, you'd like policies created by people who actually know what they're talking about, mm -hmm. right? And, and that so actually achieve their stated aims. I, that would be helpful, yeah. yeah. And, and so in this case, making sure that you have physicians uh, with public health and population health expertise making decisions uh, about clinically related things is really critical. So, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, um, many of our listeners may not be familiar with um, 
what Oregon has done and how it's structured itself. Um, do you mind taking them through some of the basics? Sure. So the Oregon legislature created the Health Evidence Review Commission, or HERC. Um, and the HERC is responsible for deciding the benefits for Medicaid. And so HERC is very different from a lot of other state Medicaid agencies, which um, you know, obviously would have physicians involved in them, but aren't necessarily a public commission. Mm-hmm. So this commission has physicians on it, but also has representatives of other stakeholder groups. Mm-hmm. It's, appoint, uh, it's appointed by the governor and confirmed by the Senate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this group of people makes evidence-informed decisions to decide how to prioritize uh, Medicaid I expenditures. See. And uh, in order for Oregon to be able to do this, we have applied for and been granted a, a waiver from the federal government? That's correct. And how do they do it in other states? They, they don't use evidence? They <laughs> Well, ideally they would, but mm-hmm. I think that we use it in a way that's much more rigorous and much more transparent than, other, than, by and large, most Medicaid agencies. There's certainly some exceptions, like Washington and Minnesota are excellent examples of very transparent processes that involve evidence and, and physicians making these decisions. Um, but what's really unique about ours is we have this very set methodology for how we look at things, and then we use very rigorous evidence-based standards whenever we're looking at any new procedure or technology or clinical service. And when you talk about rigorous evidence, um, what are the what are the standards? What are the what are the gold the gold levels of evidence? Well, the gold level, of course, is a systematic review of randomized controlled trials. Mm-hmm. And so there we look at places like Cochrane, uh, who does wonderful systematic reviews, or ARC, the Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality. Depending on the condition, though, we can't always have systematic reviews of randomized controlled trials. Mm-hmm. And so when when we're looking at any new condition, we'll have to figure out what is the highest level of evidence that's available, first of all, and maybe that's possible mm-hmm. in the second case. And I see. So, and so if if the best possible evidence is only going to be prospective cohort studies, we'll look at that. If it's a super rare disease, mm-hmm. we might be looking at case series. I see. And, or historical controls or something of right. that nature. Um, and 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 tell tell us a little bit about how do you translate the evidence to the coverage decision? What does that process look like? Um, so there are a number of different ways that that can happen. There's kind of a, a shorter process where one of my colleagues and I, uh, her name is Dr. Ariel Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, she and I are the, the medical directors for the HERC. And so we will do an evidence review trying to find the best quality evidence, figure out if we think that that particular intervention is effective and for what populations it's indicated and what, what conditions it's indicated. Um, and then we'll present that uh, to our subcommittee, uh, who is made up of physicians and other healthcare professionals mm-hmm. um, and other representatives, uh, and they will make a decision whether or not to apply that to the prioritized list uh, and how that will affect coverage for Medicaid. I see. And I think some of the listeners may be thinking um, there seems to be an undue focus on evidence. What if there's some medical practice out there that uh, is highly plausible, um, maybe it works, uh, but there simply isn't that evidence? Um, what would you say to a listener with that concern that, you know, I just have a very strong feeling that this would help patients. It hasn't been proven yet, but that's not the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, they'd like to say. What would you say to that kind of listener? I'd have a couple of responses to that. First of all, Medicaid is a, there are very restricted funds. And so we need to make sure that we are paying for the most effective and proven Mm -hmm. treatments that are out there. So first of all, Medicaid is not the place where we should be paying for experimental treatments. Mm -hmm. And second, whenever someone thinks something is a really great idea, that is the exact reason to study it and make (laughs) sure that their hypothesis is proven true or false. Right. And I think um, 
you know, you and I have spoken outside of this outside of this interview, and and I and I know we're like minded on this topic. Um, and I think the listeners, I and and particularly people who are new to medicine, um, probably aren't aware of the fact that if you could somehow make a list of all of the interventions that somebody, somebody even somebody very smart, thought were plausible over decades, and you make a list of all the things that actually do accomplish what you think they do. The second list is much, much, much smaller than the first list. And one need only look at, you know, the high rates of failure in drug development. These are pharmaceutical companies that have every financial and and uh, other interest in getting drugs to market, and they still have high rates of failure, despite often very rigorous preclinical science. And I think it does show that bioplausibility um, doesn't ensure that therapies actually work. Absolutely. I think there's one particular example, too, that comes up a lot in my work, which is about bone marrow transplant for breast cancer. Mm. This was thought to be a very effective treatment that was going to save women's lives. And so it was widely uh, covered and encouraged. And w- what we found is that a lot of women were dying, and it was actually not a good treatment. And not a good treatment. And so that's that was an example of where if you're going to be on the forefront and mm-hmm. decide to cover something early in the process before it's actually been proven to be it be helpful, then this ended up being where Medicaid was actually encouraging a lot of people to get a very dangerous treatment that increased their risk of death. I see. And I guess that's just a really great example and also highlights, I think, that um, so often these debates about covering things based on evidence um, can kind of be twisted into a false narrative where the people who want things covered portray themselves as the champions of patients and the people who ask for evidence are often portrayed as heartless or unkind. Um, but the example you're giving really shows um, that the people who champion evidence, they, they also want what's best for patients. They've just learned the very hard and painful way through medical history that, you know, hopes and plausibility just aren't enough. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. Um, your work, your work with Oregon Medicaid affects lots of people. Is there? You, you, do you know the number by chance? Uh, how many people in this state are affected by Oregon Medicaid? It's around a million. A million people, and this is not a very big state. Only several million in the state. Yes. So, the scope and reach of what you do is it touches many, many people in this state, and it's quite tremendous. Um, does that weigh heavily on you? <laughs> That's an interesting question. Um, I think it makes me want to ensure that all the processes we're following are the the best and the most rigorous and the most transparent that we possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it's a lot of responsibility, but I think that that I and the people who I work with are doing a really good job with it. And uh, well, I happen to agree with you, and I commend you for your for your efforts on this. I wanted to ask you about um, the challenge that you face when a single novel device or drug or technology comes to market, Um, let's say this drug or device um, only affects a very small group of patients in Medicaid, Um, perhaps a rare disease, perhaps um, people who have to check certain boxes, XYZ inclusion criteria that inherently limit it. Um, Let's say this drug, device, or technology is inordinately expensive, one of these million-dollar-a-year kind of therapies, perhaps with no end in sight, must be taken forever, indefinitely. Um, Maybe it's even more expensive when you add in the logistics of 
delivering the medication, perhaps. Maybe it requires a procedure, for instance, or delivering the device or, or, um, or maintaining the device or, or keeping it up to date. Um, and then let's factor in the third thing, which I think will add to the challenge, which is that the evidence for this drug or device, let's say it's five patients who are given this drug or device, and the only thing measured in this before and after study um, was a level of some biomarker. Um, perhaps a um, uh, something that can be measured in the bloodstream or something that you biopsy and then you go look under the microscope for this biomarker. And uh, no one knows really with certainty that changing this biomarker will make someone live a longer or better life. But prominent people argue that that should be true, that they believe that that is true. And then let me add one more level of complexity. Let's say that while no one would suggest that the stakeholders are disingenuous in any way, and I believe that people are always acting you know, in good faith for the most part. Let's add the caveat that the role of the company is broad um, and really has affected the majority of the experts in this condition um, and perhaps even has affected the majority of the advocacy groups in this space. By that, I mean that they are directly supported by the sponsoring company, and often the majority of the sponsorship may be by that, by that company. In these situations, you're tasked with making this decision of, is this the best use of Medicaid's limited, admittedly quite limited resources? Um, how do you think about these situations? Do they challenge you, um, and are you seeing more of them? Yeah, absolutely. So these situations are becoming more and more prevalent in in our policy life. So in terms of the the first issue that you raised, which was about biomarkers, mm-hmm. um, we're seeing this a lot where there are uh, drugs approved or technologies that are being advertised based on improvements in biomarkers. Mm-hmm. And I would say that biomarkers are not people. And ultimately, when we are making policy decisions about what to cover, our goal is to improve people's health, Mm -hmm. not the health of biomarkers. And so ultimately, I I do not feel like a biomarker is sufficient to make a policy recommendation. We need patient-oriented clinical outcomes to know for sure that these improve. I think we learned with a lot of the lipid-lowering therapies Mm -hmm. that improving the numbers is not sufficient. We actually really also need to improve cardiovascular outcomes. And so in this particular case, I would say biomarkers are never sufficient on their own. We absolutely need patient-oriented outcomes as well. And I think, um, just so the listeners know, you could look up extended-release niacin, and you can also look up phenofibrate for some classic examples of improving the number but not the patient. But let me ask you this. Um, You know, you're advocating for this at a time and a moment where at the national level, so much of policy and regulation is moving the other direction. Um, it's about how quickly and about with how little patient-oriented evidence and how much biomarker evidence we can use to facilitate approvals. Um, yeah, how do you reconcile the two things? I think that that's a potentially dangerous avenue mm-hmm. for us to move towards, and I'd actually like to ask you to pontificate on that for oh, a well, while. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to do that. Uh, well, I, of course, think, and the listeners will know this from listening to this podcast, that um, this is a dangerous uh, um, move in, in national regulatory space. Um, I, like you, believe strongly that we need measure. we need to measure and prove that our therapies improve patient-centered outcomes. And why do I feel that way? It's not because um, I'm pessimistic about science. I'm optimistic about science. I think in the long run, science is the best path forward. 
But I've learned the hard way that improving biomarkers is not the same as improving human health. And we see that with A1C. We see that with, you know, with um, uh, PVCs, post-MI and flecainide and the CAS trial. Uh, we see that with cholesterol biomarkers. Um, if you approve lots of therapies based on improving biomarkers, you will approve some good therapies, but you will not know which ones are the good ones and which ones are, are the many, many useless misstep therapies. Um, the, prob the, the other problem is that they're not differentiated by cost because manufacturers are these days charging anything that market will bear. Um, I think that this is clearly good for the industry to to have some barriers to market entry, you know, I've also seen there's some extreme right-wing libertarians who believe that, you know, there shouldn't even be an FDA. We should just have a free marketplace and like a Yelp for drugs. I think, of course, that's, yeah, I see you. <laughs> that's terrifying. Yeah, it's terrifying. I think it's clearly very dangerous. However, um, although it's extremely dangerous for public health, and we lived at a time like that where people were selling ulcers of snake oils out of the trunk of their car, um, I think what it will actually do is actually lower cost because you wouldn't be able to charge those prices in a world without that imprimatur of the regulatory state. If you're a manufacturer, especially a large manufacturer with tremendous resources, you profit most greatly when there is a barrier to market entry, um, the biomarker barrier. Not anyone off the street can prove they improve a biomarker. You also profit more than if the barrier is patient improved out, improved patient outcomes because those drugs actually have to work. So it's this middle ground between no regulation and good regulation that I think is maximum profitability. And I hate to say it, but I do feel that the national regulatory state is moving in that direction to maximize profitability. But those are just my views on the topic. But I'm not going to be interviewed a lot here. <laughs> You're here to be interviewed. Oh, okay. All right. I want to read you something. And I think this ties in with some of the work you've been doing on opioids, but you tell me if you agree. This is Richard Lewinton, and he's a, a famous biologist who I think is actually quite philosophical. And this is from a book he wrote uh, called Biology's Ideology, uh, which I read many years ago in college. And this passage always stuck with me, and so I dug it up this morning. It is certainly true that one cannot get tuberculosis without a tubercle bacillus. And the evidence is quite compelling that one cannot get the cancer mesothelioma without having ingested asbestos or related compounds. But that is not the same as saying the cause of tuberculosis is the bacteria and the cause of mesothelioma is asbestos. What are the consequences for our health of thinking in this way? Suppose we note that tuberculosis was a disease extremely common in the sweatshops and miserable factories of the 19th century whereas tuberculosis rates were much lower among country people and in the upper classes. Then we might be justified in claiming that the cause of tuberculosis is unregulated industrial capitalism. And if we did away with that system of social organization, we would not need to worry about the bacteria. When we look in the history of health and disease in modern Europe, that explanation makes at least as good sense as blaming the poor bacteria. This always struck, with, struck me. and. And I want to know what you think if it if it ties into the Medicaid population. This is a vulnerable population that, um, you know, study after study has shown um, has probably not experienced a rise in in the average living wage over the last forty years in this country. Um, has um, I think suffered uh, uh, many difficulties economically, uh, despite the fact that you know populations of this country are gaining tremendous wealth, um, and and. Also, in this country right now, we have a, 
uh, a huge epidemic of opioid abuse and death um, that often hits some of the the poorest counties in this nation the hardest. Uh, what is the cause of the opioid epi- epidemic? Well, there are a lot of causes. I, I think a lot of what you're talking about, of course, is the social determinants of health. And I think we can't in- underestimate their impact on population health. In terms of the opioid epidemic, you know, classically, there, there's sort of this triad of, of three things that were thought to have created it. Um, so first, back in the 1990s, there were a lot of national bodies who said, you know, physicians are completely undertreating pain, you know, and they decided the Institute of Medicine decided to make pain the fifth vital sign. Mm-hmm. And there was this emphasis that you're undertreating pain, we need to look at it in every single encounter. At the same time, Purdue Pharmaceuticals came out and said, we have got the best drug you can possibly imagine, and mm-hmm. it has no side effects and almost no addiction potential, and it's fantastic. Um, Sounds good. Yeah. Will you, write, will you write some for me? <laughs> no, I, I think Dilaudid is the oh, best. Okay. <laughs> um, so this combination of physicians being told that they were not uh, taking into account, there was this wonder drug that was amazing, and then there were some publicized sort of trials of physicians who were effectively sued uh, for not... Giving adequate pain relief. Absolutely. Mm. And so it's kind of this... this triad of things that, that led to the opioid epidemic. Mm-hmm. In terms of the social determinants, I, I think those are a huge factor now, but mm-hmm. I wonder if they were less of an impact at that time I because see, it was such outside. a cultural mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. where physicians really changed what they were doing. I see. Um, and now it, it's much more driven mm-hmm. by social determinants of health. I see. You know, whether you have access to treatment, you know, we have a lot of evidence now that the ACEs, the adverse childhood events, are huge predictors in terms of your risk of addiction uh, later in life. And so... Uh, while while opiates cause can cause dependence, there are a lot of modifying uh, mm-hmm. effect modifiers that are in that mix. You know whether you have this history of ACEs, whether you have social disarray, whether you have a strong social network. Um, all of those things certainly affect your impact of getting opioid dependence. And as somebody who works for a state agency which you know cares about reducing this problem, improving this problem, um, are there things that are that your hands are tied about? For instance, um, there are all these sort of health side things you can do in the doctor's office, but some of these deeper socioeconomic determinants of health, um, you know, you can't really address directly. Well, I think that's one of the amazing things that we're doing in Oregon, where we're way ahead of a lot of other states, is we are actually really considering the social determinants of health. So there are a number of models across the state where people are looking at things like food security. Uh-huh. And so clinics and health systems are partnering and, and working on getting patients access to, to better food, which is a huge predictor of, of poor outcomes. Um, uh, so, for example, with tobacco, mm-hmm. um, so the perfect clinical look at things would be, oh, if somebody smokes tobacco, then you just tell them to quit and you offer them evidence-based treatments. Mm-hmm. So Oregon is taking this a step further, and they're saying, hey, let's not actually just say let's treat the tobacco users as they come, but let's actively work on preventing people from using tobacco in the first place mm-hmm. and doing population-level strategies that really get at the social determinants of health. So if people work in a place where they're smoking everywhere, mm-hmm. then that's going to really decrease their ability. So by doing policy strategies to decrease things like smoke exposure can be very effective. I see. Um, And that seems like a a wonderful thing to do and a natural extension of um, thinking very broadly about how to tackle a problem and not just within the narrow silo of what you can do in the doctor's office, nicotine patch, nicotine gum. Absolutely. And obviously, um, the e-cigarettes must play a role in this. They do. And I think one of the things that's so hard about that, and here's where we get to all of the evidence issues, mm-hmm. right, is that the, the 
the population has used e-cigarettes widely, and mm-hmm. youth are using it more than even combustible cigarettes. Um, it's it's dramatically uh, prevalent across all of our patient subgroups, whether they're adults or children. Um, but at the same time, we have very limited evidence. Mm-hmm. You know, we have you know certainly less than ten randomized controlled trials showing the effects of e-cigarettes. And, and what's interesting is that the different levels types of evidence show different outcomes. So when you look at cohort studies mm-hmm. and observational studies, a lot of these show that e-cigarettes actually um, increase your risk of smoking. I see. They actually do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the higher level evidence, the randomized controlled trials, you see that they do seem to be effective. I see. And so there's this total contrast. And depending, and if you group all those together, and if you group these four to five RCTs, and then all of these other lower level evidence studies, you would say, oh my gosh, e-cigarettes are actually increasing smoking. But if you limit it to the higher quality evidence, then it looks like they might actually be effective. And how do you reconcile that by the simple idea that in the real world in cohort studies, the people in who, who choose to use e-cigarettes are probably more predisposed to desiring to smoke, and it's um, uh, perhaps even a stepping stone in the real world. But in randomized controlled trials where there is not that selection bias among who use the product, it uh, can actually curb cigarettes. Yes, definitely. And and also you're looking at adults who are typically trying to quit cigarettes. I see, right. Um, Different population In the RCTs, mm-hmm. right, versus in the other ones where you're looking at youth where this could be an, an entry drug, if you will. Now, this, but the, the randomized controlled trials, is there any potential risk of bias because of the sponsor? Or no, these are are they in, are they impartially sponsored? Or are they e-cigarette sponsored? I think that there's a mixture of them. Um, Cochrane did a systematic review that looked at this, and their conclusion was that there's low-level evidence that they are effective for helping adult smokers. Oh, quit. I see. Quit. I see. That's a fascinating topic. It is. Yeah. And Medicaid would stay totally out of that, though. Oh, really? <laughs> Just to be clear. Okay. I can't imagine that we would start using flexible services to pay for e-cigarettes at I this see. time. There would need to be a lot more evidence. A lot stronger, right. Lots and more stronger. robust evidence that would improve the health of patients. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about this dilemma that I think the listeners probably don't understand which is that, and you tell me if I get anything wrong or maybe, you know, clarify, this is my very simple understanding of it, um, that in Oregon we have a cut line from state Medicaid that there is a amount of money above which you do not qualify and below which you do qualify. Is that true? Yes. And that is a moving bar. It can go up a little bit one couple years and come down in the next few years. Mm-hmm. That's also correct? Mm-hmm. And, and the reason that's so important to know is that when we talk about these new technologies that are coming to market that are extremely costly, um, that Medicaid is perhaps even prohibited from um, saying no to, uh, what that essentially means is that several of those, many of those technologies could result in that bar being made lower and lower and lower. So what you're really saying is, as more and more of these costly drugs and devices come on to uh, and Medicare is perhaps forced to cover, one of the unintended consequences of that is that the bar has to fall. Um, and some people get pushed out. And the people getting pushed out are people who may lose access to very basic and perhaps even vital services. I see you're nodding your head, like you know, even blood pressure control. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are not rich people. And that's the trade-off we're making as a society. Could you talk about that trade-off a little bit? Um, 
I think it's a trade-off that listeners don't really recognize. Yeah, I totally agree. I think people don't understand this at all. Where usually they say, oh, I can't believe that insurance is not covering X drive, mm-hmm. even if it's a million dollars, and even if it only improves biomarkers, and we don't actually know if it improves health. Mm-hmm. But that cost is a human cost, because ultimately, if we end up increasing our 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 public plan benefit, you know, or budget by 10%, that might mean that 10% of people are going to be cut off. So that means that these people are going to be uninsured. They're going to have no access to care for their diabetes, uh, cancer screening, immunizations, any of the things that we know really improve that their health outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about covering things that are not uh, proven or that are extremely expensive, we're actually talking about cutting people from everything uh, where they don't have any access to insurance. And I think one of the things that's been really remarkable about Oregon is that our intent as a state has always been to increase the number of people who have access to Medicaid. Mm-hmm. That has been a value that has held true now for decades. And so the original Oregon Health Plan experiment, as it were, um, when we created the prioritized list, the whole goal of that was to say, that we want to cover more people, but maybe we can offer coverage to more people by covering less things. Mm -hmm. So we can cover, like, let's not cover things that don't matter, Mm -hmm. that have inconsequential outcomes. Or marginal, very marginal benefits. Very marginal benefit. And so what they did is they created this prioritized list. Mm -hmm. And they said, okay, let's rank all of these conditions from one to 600 something um, and really decide the things that matter at the top and the things that really have very little impact on health go at the bottom. And then the legislature says, okay, well, this is how much we're going to spend on Medicaid this year or every two years or every five years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's where there's a funding line that's drawn. And so Oregon Medicaid has made very different um, choices than Mm -hmm. other agencies. Um, So we have decided let's cover the things that really matter so we can cover the most patients possible um, versus covering more stuff. You know, and so a lot of times there'll be a lot of flack given. They'll say, oh my gosh, I can't believe that you don't cover hemorrhoids. Mm -hmm. Um, But at the same time, you know, the the treatment for some of these conditions, which are below the funded line, or hernias is another good example, Mm -hmm. uh, the treatments for those um, are not prioritized as high as the treatments for, say, diabetes or lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the net result is that more people get access, but they get access to slightly fewer things. And I think... um that's very well said. And I, I think that, you know, just to really stress why I think this is important, um, uh, other states are rationing as well. They're just not rationing in this way based on the validity of the practice. They're rationing based on the cut line, and they're just offering more services to fewer people, which deprives people who are not very wealthy of very fundamental and basic services that may improve their well-being a great deal. And that's that's the choice. That's the trade-off. So argu- arguably, ours, Oregon's approach is much more ethical than those I, of other states. I think uh, a utilitarian view of ethics, uh, I think, would, would deeply agree. But let me ask you this. I think um, the model you talk about creates, I think, makes your life harder in this sense. Um, I don't get bored. You don't get bored, right. <laughs> um, the, the people... Uh, you know, when you say you're not going to cover one particularly very costly and perhaps minimally or effective treatment for a few people, you have a vocal minority that is perhaps even very upset and can make a lot of news. And the people you're fighting for is an often disinterested um, majority who do not participate in the meetings and don't speak up. Um, and they're not there to sort of provide the counter narrative. So you're taking a lot of heat. That's true. And that can be very hard. And sometimes the heat that we're taking is not actually from 
sometimes it is patients who are really advocating for themselves and their loved ones, and that's very, very powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, providers who are taking care of these patients who really understand the evidence and also understand the confines of the decision-making we're doing. But sometimes the testimony that we're getting is also from, from industry or from uh, organizations that are actually funded by uh, the same people who are trying to get us to cover it. Mm-hmm. You know, and that, that is concerning because mm-hmm. there's obviously some bias that's introduced in that. But it's hard, you know, and we, one of the things that's amazing is that we actually have this in a public setting and all decisions that are made for Oregon Medicaid are made in a public setting. And that's completely different than a lot of other states. And I think you really made an excellent point to something that concerned me a few years ago and listeners can pull up. Um, a couple of years ago um, with one of my colleagues, we looked at um, the public speakers at the oncology drug advisory meetings at, at the US FDA. And... Um, I had made that kind of observation that you are kind of alluding to, that many of the quote-unquote public speakers uh, were speakers with direct financial ties to the sponsoring company. And we actually measured that in a paper in JAM Internal Medicine. And I think it is a it was a concerningly high amount of speakers. And I believe I was quoted at the time, and I will stand by this quote, that I view that as uh, the public microphone is being hijacked. Um, mm-hmm. The industry has their chance often at these meetings to make the case for why their product should be funded, uh, but that's not apparently enough at the drug advisory meeting, and they want to hijack the second microphone. Now, somebody said to me, um, that's not hijacking. You know, Does it matter that they're paying for travel or giving somebody some reimbursement to come there? And I would say that you know, there's a selection bias. They're not picking likely the average person. They're picking somebody who's going to speak very favorably about the product. And I think it is important to hear from patients. Um, and the better way to do it, I've suggested, is videotape diaries of patients on the trial. So even people who, unfortunately, their condition may deteriorate and they're not physically well enough to come to the meeting, they get their voice heard too. And we can just randomly pick a few videos to watch. That would be a more impartial way. And sometimes I feel the same way about these meetings that you describe. My last question to you, because I don't want to take up too much of your time, um, is I think there are many listeners, I hope there are many, but I I don't know for sure just yet. It's very early in the podcast. But I've gotten some feedback from some people. There are at least some listeners who are listening and they're trainees. And I think like you, um, they went to medical school thinking about policy and thinking about, um, you know, wanting to make a difference and and work in healthcare um, at a place where they can affect not just the patients at the bedside they see, but also many other patients. And, um, and I think there are many such people who go to medical school. But I think unfortunately, in the process of medical training and the culture of medical school, um, there are a lot of forces that pull them away from that intention. And not that there's anything wrong with this, but it is easy and seductive um, for somebody with that initial intent um, to decide on going into a specialty that's quite lucrative, um, to set up a private practice or, or, or to even enjoy a career where they no longer um, are a gladiator in this arena of healthcare policy. They sort of remove themselves from it. Um, and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that, but sometimes you do lament the fact that there are many, I think, once idealistic people who have kind of, um, you know, they went, they set out to do good and they stayed to do well sort of idea. <laughs> the old saying about Washington politics. Um, what would you tell the listeners who want to retain this idealism, who want to play a role in policy, um, 
in terms of how how to think about their training and how to stick with it, so to speak? I think it comes down to what's the impact that you ultimately want to have on society. Mm -hmm. And as physicians, we have a huge impact on individual patients when we see them in our clinics. And if you do have this passion, which is to work at a larger level and affect populations of people, then there are a lot of ways that you can do it. You know, and whether it's advocating, you know, through your specialty organization for specific things, or whether it's conducting research to actually further your field, or whether it's working in positions like mine, which is making policy decisions, um, or helping with the making of policy decisions to affect large populations. Um, I, yeah, I think that there are a lot of different ways that people can be engaged. But I, I think it's really important that you also realize that you are one voice among many. And when people are making policy decisions, they have a lot of things to consider, whether that's a legislature who has to balance expenditures mm -hmm. on uh, on healthcare versus education, you know, or whether that's um, a, a health system that has to make decisions about where to spend its resources. And if a, if one of these students does go the private practice route or something like that, which again, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, um, uh, from your point of view, are there things they could do in their career that would help people on the policy side of things? Um, you know, uh, that would help you. Yeah, I would say participate. I mean, for example, it, with Oregon, the Health Evidence Review Commission, everything we do is public. And so if there is something that you um, have a strong passion about and you say, okay, well, I'm in my private practice and I'm, I'm just doing my own thing, but I'm an oncologist or I'm a radiologist and I feel very passionately about this particular thing, making sure that you're participating, you know, and whether that's uh, to an organization such as the Health Evidence Review Commission and saying, oh, this thing should be, you know, covered or not covered and here's some additional evidence and did you consider these contextual factors or whether it's getting involved with your association, I would just say get involved mm -hmm. with wherever your passion lies. I think that's an excellent advice. Um, and I guess if I forced to add something, I'm going to add something. I would say, you know, and you can correct me if you can, you can say something if you disagree with what I'm saying. I think that one of the things they could do is um, avoid financial conflict with the industry. Uh, we need more doctors out there in the real world who are truly impartial um, just stay out of it uh, get your CME from impartial associations and then my biggest plug would be um, educate yourself in medical evidence uh, you don't want to be the doctor out there who is writing down what the drug rep is telling you you want to be the doctor out there who is either declining to meet with the drug rep or educating the drug rep about how to actually interpret this paper. Um, you don't want to be pushed around. Uh, it is clearly good and big business to, I think, prey upon the fact that the average doctor has a deficiency or weakness in evidence-based appraisal. Um, that's That's been perpetuated by our medical system, which I think still does not do a good job of educating us well in evidence. I think you have to learn it on your own time, um, but it is the most vital thing you can learn and the thing that will keep you from being used as a pawn in a broader game, a pawn, perhaps an unwitting pawn and unable to recognize that you're being used as a pawn. Do you disagree with that? No, I totally agree. That's fantastic. I think one of the other things is people don't realize that they are affected. You know, so if they're taking um, drug industry lunches and things mm -hmm. like that, a lot of um, physicians will say, oh, but it doesn't affect me. I'm right. still objective. And what we know from the evidence is that's not true. Even very small amounts can absolutely change your perception. And mm -hmm. so I agree. I, I agree that educating yourself um, or through, um, through your medical school or CME programs on how to really appraise evidence and how to critically view it is essential and probably the most 
most important skill that we have as physicians. And I would also say that if if you are questioning whether or not to take um, you know, money from industry or free lunches or things like that. Um, there was a professor at Harvard Medical School who said something to me once that really struck with me, which is, if you are going to sell your soul to industry, do it for more than the price of a pen. <laughs> I think that's well said. And, uh, oh, I wanted to give you a chance to plug this one last thing. Um, why should listeners uh, consider a career in family practice? So family medicine is pretty fantastic, particularly if you want to do policy or any type of population mm-hmm. health, because we are the only specialty that actually knows the health of, of everybody. We know of old people and young people and pregnant women, and we are trained in all of that. And so if you actually want to do true population health or policy, this is one of the best possible clinical backgrounds you can get. Um, and for me, in medical school, I, yeah, I did all my rotations, and I liked them all a lot. You know, and uh-huh. I, some people might chalk it up to indecision, but ultimately, <laughs> I wanted to change the world. I wanted to understand the health needs of every population that I met with, and I felt like family medicine was the only way I could do that. And you still spend some time in clinic. Is that I right? do, yeah. So I spend half time in clinic, and I take care of families, and I also do hospital medicine as well. I see. And that keeps you grounded. It does, and I think that that's really important. Is when you are making these policy, de- when you're involved in these policy decisions, really coming back and saying, "Okay, I'm seeing these patients every day, and and how how does this tie into this other work?" Mm-hmm. And I, I love my clinical practice, but I, I feel like it's a good counterbalance to my policy work. Now, well said. Well, I uh, don't want to take up any more of your time, Catherine Livingston. Thank you so much for coming to the plenary session stage. Uh, will you ever consider coming back? <laughs> I would. Thank you. You've been listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session is a new podcast at the intersection of medicine, oncology, and health policy. I've been your host, Vinay Prasad. If you like this show and you like this podcast, uh, please go to the iTunes store and give us five stars. Uh, It means a lot. Um, Follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. Um, or send us an email at plenarysessionpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you have any thoughts, questions, topics you want to cover, um, let us know. We'd love to get some feedback. Uh, Plenary Session uh, owes a debt of gratitude to Kiana Klossner, uh, Audrey Tran, and Ian Straley. <laughs>